0: All right. I want to point out something to you guys. Uh, You'll notice that we've been talking about this winter seminar, this mysterious winter seminar. It is now in place. Our speaker is Matthew McLean. Uh, He is a geologist, creationist, uh, paleontologist, actually, which is a rare fossil these days. And um, and so he's going to be Abu, I like that. Uh, So he's going to be coming out, um, speaking four times, December 29th and January 5th. And this is just my stab at a title. This title may change, but Fossils and Faith, um, that might be changed once our graphics people get a hold of it and the people actually know how to advertise. I didn't get a degree in advertisement. Uh, So he'll be talking about things like, are there really feathered dinosaurs? It will be probably one of his topics. Does the fossil record support naturalistic evolution? Um, he'll probably be preaching on the Lazarus and the rich man and, um, all creation groans and in, in Romans eight. So I encourage you guys to come on out for that. If you're in the right class, you're in the theology and his history track. This kind of is a reminder of kind of where we're at in our year. We're wrapping up systematic theology. We're only going to get through half of systematic theology this year. Then we'll leave you hanging. We'll come back to it next year. The second half after our winter seminar, we're going to go into evangelism. And then we're going to do all of church history in 13 weeks. It's going to be fantastic. You guys will love it. Um, So this morning, we're talking about the problem of sin. One of the questions that we're asking is, why should we even talk about sin? I was out at UCR with Justice and some people the other day doing some evangelism. And uh, actually, I think it was when I was sharing Kristen Riley's track and this lady stopped and said, why are we getting such negativity at 730 in the morning? As I was talking about sin and her testimony, to which I responded, look at the back of this track. This lady repented of her sins. She was delivered from demons and now she's just trying to raise her kids for Christ. This is not negativity. This is beauty. And she didn't respond to that, but. But, you know, it is when you start talking about this topic of sin, it can sound even here at Cornerstone. There's times where we've had people come up to us, and say, why are we always singing about sin and preaching about sin? I thought we were saints. Um, and is it is it true? Should we stop talking about sin once we become saved? Um, when we're out preaching the gospel, should we avoid the sin term? Uh, when I'm evangelizing, I you know people don't sin sounds like a weird word. I don't know if those of you guys that weren't raised in the church like me. I remember when I came to church for the first time as a young person, and I'm hearing words like sin, grace, faith. I thought I was on another planet. We didn't use terms like that in my home. It was like sin, grace was our neighbor next door. She was our Ar- our mini. Was he our minion? Um, I-, I don't remember. Greek. Yeah. So grace was just the name of the lady who lived next door. I'd never heard it in real words being used. And so sin is just an odd word. But Spurgeon says this in a sermon that maybe you guys were able to read this week. Sin is the greatest evil in the universe. It's the parent of all other evils. Every other, every evil that we see in our universe ultimately comes from sin. He also says in that same sermon, since your hearts are deceitful and sin is deceitful, you are in danger indeed. So if that's true, even if if our hearts are still deceitful, maybe since we got saved, we no longer have deceitful hearts. Maybe you, not me. So our hearts are deceitful. Sin is deceitful. And so there's something for us to be afraid of. There is a real uh, danger Um, You know, just this week, we had uh, down in San Diego, a man killed his estranged wife and three sons and killed himself. That was yesterday. Saugus, we have um, a a high school student goes on campus, kills three people, and he died. In New Jersey, we have uh, uh, guns going off at at a football game. Seems like every time you turn around, there's something else going on that sounds like the Book of Judges. Um, there's there's just things happening, and that's and 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 every time you hear an interview with one of these people, said, like, "Oh, they they seem like such a nice person," and um, and then you start looking at your own heart and some of the things that you find yourself thinking about, um, or maybe some of the ways that you behave. And sometimes it can even be shocking to yourself. Um, if you've traveled outside the United States, if you've ever gone on a mission trip, I'll never forget when I went down to Mexico City for the first time and saw a little four-year-old sucking on a soda can. His eyes were drooping. I was like, what is going on here? This was a street child. They have thousands of street children in Mexico City. And one of the missionaries had to inform me that he's sniffing glue. This four-year-old is sniffing glue and is and addicted glue and there was thousands of street children that did the same types of behaviors abusing each other sniffing glue robbing one another Um, the largest street children population in the world is Rio de Janeiro 500,000 street children last time I checked the reason that you have such a street children problem Rio de Janeiro is because of uh, fornication harlotry the prostitution And so, and they don't believe in abortion the way we believe in abortion, right? Although the West is starting, or the United States is starting to have an impact on Brazilian ethics and morals. So they're starting to abort more of their babies to take care of their street children problem. Um, These are the types of evils that we see in our world. And if you ask people, many are going to say, well, the problem is economic. There wouldn't be so much unrest uh, and violent uprisings if uh, there was more equality in our economics. Some would say the problem is judicial. Uh, we just have a corrupt uh, judicial system. Or some would say it's political. Or did you hear about the guy um, just not too long ago, Pastor Wayne Wilson posted, there's a guy who was in jail for life and then he choked his and killed his uh, uh, cellmate. And so he got a second life sentence. What's that? You know, Um, you kill somebody and you get a second life sentence. Um, So there is some truth to this, that judicial problems, uh, political. Some people would say it's political. Congress bickers while ordinary people suffer. Maybe the problem's the family. We have too many single parent families. There's not enough role models. Maybe it's education. If people are basically good and they're a blank slate, if we can just give them the right information... Right. It's like so many public schools today. They put they're putting uh, tablets into the hands of children, in many cases, unfiltered in the school system. And that's going to help them because all the children are going to go get educated with their tablets. How's that working out? <laughs> uh, and so we're having all kinds of other problems because of that. Uh, there, there is a grain of truth to all of these suggestions, but. The common theme and many of the suggestions that you hear out there today is is basically this is structural. So the problem is structural. Uh, Our most pressing problems are outside of us, like a car that needs just a little bit of alignment, maybe a broken bone that needs to be healed. We need some fine tuning There's structural issues. But the Bible comes in and says, no, it's not structural it's moral. It's not out there. It's in here. Our most pressing problem is what the Bible calls sin, which means falling short of God's standard or rebelling against his laws. <clears throat> sin is what's messed us up. And then sin that's messed us as individuals up messes up the structures of society. So again, Spurgeon says the greatest evil in the universe is the parent is sin. Sin is the greatest evil in the universe. It's the parent of all other evils. And so we want to try to take a look at that this morning. Is is that true? or Is Spurgeon overstating or oversimplifying the case? So let's talk about the problem of sin. And the problem is, is that there really is a standard. You know, if, if I'm talking about sin to people out at UCR, out you know, at the skate park near my house, or wherever, um, you're using a term again that people—it sounds weird to them, and and people are going to respond many times. That's that's passé, or that sounds like the Scarlet Letter. You know, you're you're using sin. This sounds like, you know, a Nathaniel Hawthorne novel. It's so repressive and negative. Um, sin no longer makes sense in our culture because. People aren't thinking about God. God doesn't make sense. They don't have God in their thoughts. So sin doesn't make sense. If we misunderstand the disease, however, we're going to misunderstand the cure. Um, So the problem, as we're going to see from the scriptures, is that sin suggests a standard. You know, we can call um, pornography evil. We can call child, um, you know, uh, child endangerment or a child pornographer—evil. We can talk about these people that are killing people on campuses and say that's evil, and and that does express moral revulsion, but it doesn't really set the action against any kind of standard. The difference between calling something evil and sinful is this: uh, both of them describe something as horrific and heinous, but only sin understands. W- that evil has a relationship to God, um, so I can say something's evil, and and feel pretty moral about it. But if I call it sin, now it's it's being measured against something. Um, our world lives with this uneasy contradiction. Uh, you know, we are moral agents, uh, yet we're seeking to live kind of with this subjective moral standard. Our culture defines something as wrong if it hurts someone else, right? If it hurts somebody else, then it's wrong. But if it really doesn't hurt anybody, if I'm just kind of in the privacy, you know, we're kind of like doing, we're having sexual relations the way we want to privately, um, and that doesn't really hurt anybody else, then it's not really wrong. Um, And so in that case, the standard of morality is another person's claim to have been harmed. If I can say I've been harmed, now it's wrong. The secular West is in a quest for freedom from the eye of God and has traded the perfect standard, divine standard for shifting standards of of what really people subjectively see as their own personal hurt, which ironic, ironically just leads to anarchy. Um, so if I perceive that it hurt me, if you say something to me and now I feel hurt by it, now it's wrong. Rather than it being measured by an objective standard. In Christianity, we have a very different standard. We have the, Our standard is 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 the Bible. And so we come to the Bible story. And the Bible has sin as a theme in Scripture. Uh, Genesis 3 is really crucial. We're, we're going to look. At Genesis three in some detail here in a second, but let's put Genesis three kind of in a context here. Is as we start off right at the very beginning of the Bible story, we have things being created good, but then in Genesis, Genesis three, there's an expulsion from the promised land. Genesis four, you have murder of uh, Cain killing Abel. Then in Genesis five, you see words like "and they died." And then you're not a few chapters into this book before the whole world's getting flooded and killed. And then even after that solution, you still have the Tower of Babel. And so in the first 11 chapters, sin is just everywhere. And it's not just people feeling hurt. It's violation against God and God taking care of business, kicking Adam and Eve out, dealing with Cain, flooding the world dispersing the world after the Tower of Babel. It's like man consistently, man and woman consistently sins and God responds with various levels of punishment. And so let's talk for a, a, a moment about the meaning of sin. There's a lot of different terms that we see all over the Bible. Let's talk about some of these Old Testament terms first. Is one of the most common terms over 600 times. It gets translated more often. Op- often for us is just sin. Chata, um, I can't say it like Pastor Milton. Pastor Milton was a Hebrew teacher at Masters, and so he could do the chata a lot better than I can. Um, but it, it, it's the idea of, of missing a target, failing, or falling short of a goal. That's the most common. What gets translated to sin for us, which sounds like this very religious word, is just basically you've missed the target. It's not like you've missed the target a little bit. It can be used in a lot of different ways, but in a religious sense, it means you've completely missed the target. It's not like you almost got to the bullseye. It's like you didn't even hit the target. Um, when I went out shooting with Don Carey a cert- couple months ago, um, you know, he set up some distant targets. and There were many times where it's like we didn't hear anything. We didn't see anything. Why? Because I completely missed the target. I didn't hear a bing. And um, so I sinned. I just completely missed it. Um, another word would be uh, avon. And so this is the word for iniquity. The idea here is twisting or bending, distortion, perversion. It's very visual. You know, th- think of a, a stick that's all twisted up. Um, I remember when Michelle fell off her, not fell off her bike, got hit by a car and her arm had iniquity in it i mean you could see the that that was the bike okay so her arm was broken and it was like clearly not Right. right you know so there was iniquity there it was bent it was twisted a third term is uh pisha that the idea there is transgression transgression would be Kind of like moving outside of boundaries that have been set and established by God. Trespass is moving into places you shouldn't be moving into. And so the idea here is crime. Sin is criminal behavior against God is one way to think of sin. You know, sin, there's so many different terms for sin. You can tell that it's that sin is an important concept in biblical culture. You know, when you move into certain cultures, if it's not a big deal, you don't see a lot of di- lot of diverse words. Like for us, we don't have a ton of snow around here. So when you're talking to Californians about snow, we tend to just say snow, right? We don't have a lot of variety the way we talk about it. But in Alaska, Shirley Morgan, one of our missionaries who worked amongst Native American women, There are so many different Eskimo terms for snow. It's amazing. Um, I I can't remember the exact number, but something like in the neighbor of 20 different words to describe different kinds of snow because they live in it. And so when you come to the biblical culture, it's there are so many different words for sin. It's amazing. Unrighteousness, ungodliness, debt, um, you know, wickedness, iniquity, the things we've talked about. Isaiah uh, 59 verse 2 is a good summary statement. It's got a couple of these terms, <clears throat> but it gives us an idea of the distance that's created where uh, I, the Lord says, or Isaiah says uh, your iniquities. So that's the perversion crookedness have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear a lot of visual here. Separation. Is what iniquity causes it. Our sins cause God to hide his face from us. And then he plugs his ears. That's that's what sin does. It separates. And then God chooses to turn from us. And then he closes his ears to us. So we see terms and consequence uh, right in this. In this particular verse. Let me let me throw out a couple definitions that may help us get our minds around this concept of sin. Um, it's In short, it's elevating the self um, to the place that only God should have. at its embryo, you know the you, you have the first temptation, you will be like God. Genesis three five kind of gets at it. Let me throw out a couple here's a definition that I've used when I've preached. In different settings, like memorial services, where there's not a lot of people that really talk about sin. I've said things like this. Sin is the soul cancer that has infected every one of us, coursing through our veins, as it were. It is our nature that drives us to irrationally strike out against God. It's the choice we make to establish ourselves as little gods while we play make believe that life is a movie about us, that we are the stars of our own reality show. That's it's it's a disease in the sense that it's in us. Right. Soul cancer. I use that term sometimes when I'm preaching to unbelievers, soul cancer. It is a nature where we just naturally strike out against our creator but we also run around with this very self orientation. I, I don't know if if you I, I'm going to share something weird here that I don't know if you've ever done this, but when you're a little kid, you know, you're watching these like I used to love watching army movies. Right. And you see all these army movies and you start there's certain characters in the army movie that you like. And then after I'd watch a movie, I'd run around. i pretending like I'm now in my own movie and I'm one of these guys running around doing heroic acts. And I would play like I'm different characters. But really, if I'm honest, for most of my life, I kind of run around as if I'm just the star of my own movie. Everybody's interested in me. God kind of God's there just watching my movie like, oh, man, Mike is the star. And that's kind of like the way we can tend to think. Now, in a biblical sense, God reorients us helps us see that jesus is the star what's crazy is god does give us undue attention as his children that's the crazy part even though christ is the star god treats us as the star even though we're not right that's why john the baptist says i'm the disciple whom jesus loved why does he think he's the disciple whom jesus loved Because he is the disciple whom Jesus loved. And in one sense, all of us are the disciples whom Jesus loved. But part of getting there is realizing we're not the star. Jesus is the star. And um, so, cancer of the soul coursing through our veins, making us think that we can be happy without our happiness. What's our happiness? It's the one who made us. So, those are some working definitions. Let's talk about the solution to sin. So sin in the biblical story, we see sin everywhere, but the Bible doesn't go very far. You're only into chapter three of Genesis when you're already starting to see pointers towards Christ um, with uh, the skin that is wrapped around Adam and Eve, the sacrifices, the flood, the ark, you know, day of atonement. And so the solution to sin is Jesus Christ. That's why when John the Baptist shows up on the scene, He points to Christ. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. So John the Baptist shows up. You don't even see Jesus yet in the narrative of John. And already John the Baptist is telling us what he's coming to do. It's about sin. That's why Jesus is coming to deal with this thing called sin. Even the name Jesus. Think about it. Matthew 121. uh, You are to give him the name. Jesus, which means Yahweh saves or Yeshua, Jehovah saves is kind of we won't go into the Latin misunderstanding there. But Yeshua, uh, Jesus saves because he will save. Why is he called Jesus saves or Jehovah saves because he will save his people from their sins. So think about that one verse. You shall call his name Yahweh saves for he will save his people from what? their sins that's the solution but to appreciate the salvation of christ that he came to bring we need to go back to the beginning we can't really appreciate christ as savior if we don't understand what he's saving us from which is sin and the more we understand our sin this is the the thing that christians have to keep in mind sometimes as christians we can get into this stinking thinking where we think oh we need to stop thinking about sin because now we're in christ No, keep thinking about sin and that helps you grow in your love and appreciation for Christ. As long as we're not staying on the sin side and just sitting there loathing our sin without looking to Jesus, you want to loathe your sin and that should drive us to Christ. Right. He who has sinned much loves much. And if we're thinking about the fact that we have sinned much Then we love Christ much, but if we think our sins really aren't that big of a deal and they're kind of like down here, well, of course, Jesus would save me. I'm a good guy, right? Or, um, you know, my sins really not that my sins down here. So the gap between me and God's holiness isn't all that big. So maybe there are some things I can do to add to Christ's righteousness. That's virtually every cult on the planet has some version of, of self-righteousness where we think that we're not that bad. Therefore, Christ's work on the cross isn't as infinite as the Bible indicates it is. And we think that we can somehow do something that will bridge the gap. So let's talk about the essence of sin. And, and go ahead and turn to Genesis 3 here. I wish we had time to do a full exegesis but we're going to kind of read through it and and make a couple comments talk about adam and eve's sin so it was so they they were in a good environment great condition we have to remember that adam and eve did not have an inclination towards sin right they didn't have an inclination towards sin at this point in history but in chapter 3 verse 1 now the serpent was more crafty Than any other beast of the field that God had made. By the way, this is a sideline, you research this on your own. Probably this means that serpent, not every serpent, but that particular serpent that was being indwelt by the devil, was more crafty than all the other beasts that were there in the field, and said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? So the very first temptation is just a question. Which is just the way the devil works. All he does is he just raises questions. Initially, he doesn't come up with a black flag of piracy saying, rebel against your maker. No, it's just like, hey, let's ask a couple of questions. Let's have a dialogue here. Did he really say that? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. Good answer. But God said, you shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. A lot of people focus on the fact that she says nor shall you touch it verse 4 but the serpent said to the woman now here's the direct attack you shall not surely die that's a direct by uh, contradiction to what god said god knows that when you eat of the eye, eat of it <clears throat> your eyes will be open and you will be like god knowing good and evil so god's holding back something from you john milton supposes in his book that part of what the devil's saying is, or the serpent, "Hey, look at me. I he's he's kind of guessing here. I ate of the tree, and now I can talk. If you eat of the tree, what will happen for you?" That's the devil through the serpent tempting Eve to think, "Look, look how exalted I am now, having the ability to speak." Um, which some commentators argue that the serpent is actually indwelt by the demonic power, by the devil. That's what enables him to speak. And and so the part of the temptation is, whoa, what's, this serpent has been given the ability to speak. What will happen to me if I partake? So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, so she looked at it, saw it was delight to the eyes, looks pretty good, that the tree was desirable to make one wise. I think the devil's got a point or the serpent has a point she took of its fruit she touched it she ate it let's do an experiment she also gave to her husband hey let's let's do this in community let's see let's test it out together i can't just sin by myself let me bring you in and he ate then the eyes of both were opened they knew that they were naked they sewed fig leaves together made themselves loincloths and the rest is history man so what's going on here In this chapter, we see several different things. In this section of the chapter, um, we see sin tragically entering the human condition. This gives an explanation for the universality of our sinful condition. So the very first man and woman. By the way, if they're not the very first man and woman, then why then they have no connection to our sin, but the Bible argues everywhere that there is a connection between us and Adam and Eve. So that implies that they must be the first uh, man and woman from a theological standpoint. And, but notice how it hits first notice that their sin sought to redefine the basis for knowledge. It gave a different answer to the question. What is true? God had come along and said, don't eat of the tree. The serpent says you will not die. So they do an experiment. Um, Ultimately, this is saying that God's word isn't trustworthy. Sin says you can't follow God's word. It will lead you astray. Sin begins with believing a lie and disbelieving God. That's that's part of the essential nature of sin. God says something and we start to ask questions and we say, I don't know. I don't know if I can really trust God on that. That is the essential. And it, it doesn't seem that bad, right? It's not like, I mean, if you talk to, I mean, any one of us in here who have lived on the planet for any time as we ourselves have fallen in to certain sins that we now regret. It's not like our very first time into that sin um, was the disaster, right? It was just questions. My parents don't want me. They say they don't want me to do such and such. Well, do they really know? God says this is good and that's bad. Well, does he really know? How does God really know that? How do I really know I can trust God? How do I really know that I can trust God's word? And we begin to question and doubt. Um, number two. So it's so it goes after the idea of what is truth. Secondly, it goes after ethics. Their sin sought to redefine as the basis for moral standards. He gave a different answer to the question. What is right? God had said it was morally right for Adam and Eve not to eat of the of the tree. But the serpent suggested it would be right to eat of the fruit and that in eating it, Adam and Eve would become like God. So God says it's not right. The serpent says it is right. They go ahead. Eve trusted her own evaluation of what was right rather than allowing God's word to define right and wrong. And um, so we have to be aware of self-made morality is is what god says is right ethically is what he says is true epistemologically or is it us and from a just a very basic level the bible is trying to get us to trust an infinite creator above ourselves who are creatures to believe him and to believe that he, he knows what's right and ethically he he tells us what's right and he can be trusted thirdly it Challenges the whole basis of identity. Who am I? The correct answer was that Adam and Eve were God's creatures dependent on him. And were to subordinate themselves to their creator. But Adam and Eve succumbed to the temptation to be like God. Thus attempting to put themselves in the place of God. So those are the three. So it's basically challenge of truth or epistemology. Challenge of morals or what we call ethics. Challenge of who am I? What we call ontology. It goes after all of those areas right in the garden. And at the bottom line, Adam and Eve decided that they were going to exalt themselves above God. We see here that pride lies at the heart of sin. Sin is forsaking God in order to find in yourself what you were meant to find in God. And so... What this chapter teaches us is that God created humankind good, not flawed. But Adam and Eve chose to disobey. As a consequence, God curses mankind. We get the uh, sentence of death. And it's after the sentence of death that we have suffering, sickness, disease, natural disasters, They did not exist before the fall. Theoretically, if the fall would have never occurred, you wouldn't have people shooting each other. You wouldn't have sickness. You wouldn't have earthquakes. You wouldn't have natural disasters. um, You wouldn't have divorces. You wouldn't have child pornography. You wouldn't have fornication. You wouldn't have whoremongering. You wouldn't have trafficking. All the things that we're trying, you know, We're trying to deal with in ourselves and in society. It just would not exist if it weren't for sin, which kind of begs the question. Okay, so this is the first human sin, but what is our relationship to that first human sin? That's it's one thing that Adam and Eve sinned. What does that have to do with me and you? Adam and Eve sinned. So what? Why? Why? Why is Adam and Eve sinned? have anything to do with the rest of us. And that brings us to what we call the origin of sin, or you guys have heard this, the doctrine of original sin. When we talk about original sin, a lot of people think that original sin is the doctrine that Adam and Eve were the first ones to sin. That's really not the doctrine of original sin. The doctrine of original sin answers this question. Why don't any of us, we're all born, human beings are born all over the world, and yet universally human beings do evil, do bad things. Why? And let me let me phrase it this way. Am I a sinner because I sin? Or. Do I sin because I'm a sinner? Yes. Yes. So am I a sinner because I sinned or do I sin because I'm a sinner? And that's what the doctrine of original sin answers is what is the connection between us and Adam is really what we're after here. And so, you know, we could spend a whole lesson on this, but I'm just going to give you kind of the, the short scoop. Sin does not originate with God. You know, he his eyes are too pure to look on evil. Um, we We have to be careful that we do not... You know, we, we remember that God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. Um, when we look at the scriptures, we see that there's the angelic fall. In Jude 6, we see angels who did not stay within their positions of authority, left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the day of judgment. And so, right at the fall of angels, you had a certain percentage. We, we're not told what the percentage is, but a certain percentage of demons were just immediately enchained, and for some reason, some of them weren't. Um, but and then, Second Peter two four says God did not spare angels when they sinned. And so we we know that sin happens amongst the angelic. And what's crazy is when we look at at the scriptures, is there's no opportunity for salvation for the demonic. Right? There's no gospel that went out to, the, to Satan and to the demonic realm once they rebelled. They rebelled. They sinned. It's over. There's no offer of hope or forgiveness for them. That offer is only offered to mankind. And so it doesn't originate with God. It does originate in the angelic realm. And yet God is totally sovereign and yet never the author of sin. We have to be very, very careful that, you know, there's there's all kinds of philosophical systems out there that talk about the yin yang. You need this balance. We were watching a little bit of Star Wars just last night. And you've got this idea of the balance of the good side and the force. And you have this idea that, you know, you know, there's two opposing equal powers. You have God and then you have the devil and they're kind of offsetting each other. And and there's some systems that would say the devil's necessary to offset the good. Or that the devil is continually battling God, or that God was just completely out of control. Sin took him by surprise. He he created a good universe. All of a sudden, sin popped up. He was like, "Oh my goodness, what is going on? It's totally out of control." Um, but what we have here is we have to be very careful that we think carefully about this. The Bible insists that God is sovereign, so sovereign that nothing takes him takes place in the universe uh, that escapes the boundary of his control some theologians would say it this way he stands behind good in such a way that the good can ultimately be credited to him he stands behind evil in such a way that what is evil is inevitably is credited to secondary agents so we see this in the story of job satan has no power over job without god's sanction right Yet God is never the one who does the evil. He is never the author of sin. He governs all that happens, yet he has never done wrongly. We call this, again, the doctrine of compatibility. Um, We must say it's a mystery. While we know that evil exists, God, and and he governs it, um, he is not responsible. As we just saw uh, in the very first human sin, human beings made their decision and yet God is sovereign over all. Let me read the way the Baptist confession of faith says it. 1689. Our first parents being seduced by the subtlety and temptations of Satan. Sinned and eating the forbidden fruit. This their sin was ple- uh, God was pleased. According to his wise and holy counsel to permit having purpose to order it to his own glory. That's an excellent statement. One of the things I really appreciate about historical um, documents, a lot of our historical documents, is these theologians work very hard to just say what the scripture says and leave the tension. So when you read this statement, you should feel tension, right? You're like, this creates tension. And that's appropriate because all they're trying to do is say what the Bible says because the Bible leaves tension. When it comes to the doctrine of theodicy, that is, where does evil come from? The Bible never indicates that God's out of control, but the Bible doesn't blame God for the origin of sin. But God's not sitting there like, oh, no, there's this equal opposite power to me. I mean, go read the, the scenario of Micah sometime with Ahab and you'll scratch your head. Right. You guys remember that scene? Ahab wants to go out in the battle against uh, Ramoth Gilead. Jehoshaphat smells a rat. He says, hey, let's ask the prophets. All the prophets are false. so They tell Ahab to go up. So, but then Jehoshaphat's like, hey, isn't there one prophet that'll give us a straight scoop? Ahab says, well, there is that Micaiah, but I hate him. He always prophesies bad about me. Well, let's talk to him. So before Micaiah comes into the throne room, one of the handlers says, hey, everybody's going along with the plan. You need to go along with the plan, too. He's like, well, I'm going to say whatever the Lord tells me to say. Okay. So Micaiah comes into the throne room, and first, sarcastically, they say, Okay, what, Micaiah, should we go into battle against Ramoth Gilead? He says, Yes, go up into battle. The Lord's going to deliver you. Ahab knows he's being sarcastic. So that's why he says, How many times shall I make you swear to tell me the truth? Then all of a sudden, Micaiah says, I saw all the spirits before the Lord and the Lord said, who will go out and take out Ahab for me? I'm paraphrasing. And one spirit came up and said this. Another one said that. Another one says, I'll go do it. And the Lord says, how shall you do it? He says, I'll be a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. And the Lord says, go and you shall succeed. And so he's there. Therefore, Ahab, you're going to go into battle and you're going to die. Then one of the false prophets comes up and smacks Micaiah in the face and says, where did the slain spirit come from me? It's like, and what happens to Ahab, right? Do you guys remember this scene? Am I just talking to the choir here? Ahab's like, that didn't sound good. I got a plan. I'm not going to put on my kingly garb as I go into battle. I'm going to hide like one of the soldiers. Then this prophecy won't come true. Hey, Jehoshaphat, why don't you go out dressed as the king? Jehoshaphat's like, uh, okay. And so he goes out dressed like the king. Ahab goes out dressed as a soldier, right? Right. So the Syrians, who do they attack? Jehoshaphat. Yeah, they start going after Jehoshaphat because he's the one that's dressed like the king. They all think he's Ahab. Jehoshaphat's out there, and I'm paraphrasing. He's like, oh, this was not a good idea. (laughs) And so then it says he cried out to the Lord. This is the Lord diverted the armies around him, right? Then somebody shot a random arrow, (laughs) hits Ahab right between his armor, and he dies you think God's in control of these things? (laughs) I think so. I think the Lord is, when you read passages like that, it is so clear that God's in control. And yet the Bible's very clear that God is light. There is no evil in him whatsoever, but yet he is using powers. He is using even false prophets to take out an evil king. And the thing that we have to remember, and we're going to have to end with this. We'll pick up this next week. The thing that we have to remember, folks, is that God's a creator in your creatures. We're all creatures. And so God, because of his infinite power, he's able to do things righteously and and with wisdom that you and I have no, we can't even begin to comprehend how he can accomplish that. How in the world does he get Ahab and Jezebel out of the way using lying prophets and yes, Jehu. Remember we talked about Jehu last week. Jehu's another guy. He's almost like a Donald Trump character. It's kind of like he's taking care of some business, but he's a wacky dude, right? And in the end, Jehu isn't such, he's a very mixed bag, You know, he's doing some he clearly sees himself as the hand of God and the prophets tell him you are the hand of God. And yet he ends up being kind of a bad guy, too. Um, How can the Lord spin all of these plates and accomplish what he accomplishes? He is an amazing God who can do it. And you and I can't let's go ahead and pray and then we'll take questions up here. Lord, we thank you so much for the fact that you are in control of all things. And while our sin is deep, you are a great savior. Help us to dig deep and to understand that yes, sin can deceive us. Yes, sin can harden us. Um, our hearts are deceitful. And yet we have been saved by Christ who has come to shed his blood to take away all sin. When We think about all of the sins that we commit. Even one sin damns us. Not let alone the sin of a year or the sin of a lifetime. And then we compile the sins just in this room. We compile the sins of all of the elect for all of human history. And yet Christ's blood shed wipes away all of that sin. Not because you take sin lightly, sin is a mountain, but your blood covers the mountains like the flood of Noah. And so we thank you, Lord, for the great forgiveness that we have. Help us to think much of Christ, much of forgiveness. Help us to shut our mouths when we come to mysteries and to believe you. Unlike Adam, the first Adam, help us to trust in the second Adam and to not seek to be like God, but to be loved by God through Christ. We pray this in your name. All God's people said, amen.